Ladies and gentlemen, boys, girls, and those of you somewhere in between, welcome to another episode of The Chris Roberts Show. In this episode, I'm interviewing Sarah Russo. Sarah is a publishing professional with 20 years' experience working across the spectrum of publicity, communications, traditional marketing, social media marketing, branding, and business development. Sarah has worked in-house for a number of very big publishing companies, including Knopf and Oxford University Press most recently. She's also worked as a consultant for some very big organizations and companies you would recognize. Most recently, Sarah was the global head of audience engagement, publicity, and social media for Oxford University Press, the largest not-for-profit publisher of trade and academic books in the world. She's a regular speaker at conferences, book festivals, and universities. This is a great episode for anyone thinking of publishing their book, whether it's through the traditional route or uh, as an indie author. It really highlights the need to be prepared to market your own book even if you're going down the traditional route so there's some really good advice in here i 100 percent recommend you check it out the pen is mightier than the sword a podcast for writers the chris roberts show sarah welcome to the show chris thanks so much for having me you sent me some information there's quite a lot of experience on there, which we'll dig into in a moment. Yeah. Uh, I thought it might be good to start off with how important is it for an author, particularly an indie author, to build their own audience? That's a really good question. It's not only important for indie authors, it's important for all authors. You know, there's an expectation both from publishers and if you're going out on your own and independently publishing that you're going to bring an audience to your work. How you go about bringing that audience, there's a multitude of different ways of doing it. But fundamentally, whether uh, you're being acquired by a publisher, they're going to ask you, what's, what's your audience? What's your Twitter following? How many people you know follow you on Instagram? A publisher will ask that question. And if you're doing all of the work yourself, if you're doing that outreach to a market on your own, you need that audience too. And it doesn't have to be all social media audience. There's lots of other ways to access people, but um, that's an easy one for people to look at and, and initially target. So you worked for some big publishing companies like Doubleday, Farrar, Oxford University Press, where I think you're currently, or most recently at least, Global Head of Audience Engagement, Publicity and Social Media. Can you take us through like a bit of a summary of your career to date and maybe some of the key sort of things you've learned over that time? Yeah, um, I got my start as a publicity assistant at Knopf um, right out of college and, you know, had a tremendous experience there. I, I liken it to my graduate degree in, in publishing. You know, I learned everything from how to write a press release to how to talk to media the right way, um, how to talk to authors, I think, in a, in a kind and understanding way. Um, I got to, you know, meet some of the, the canons, right? Anne Rice and Ted Koppel and John Updike. And, you know, the, it was an amazing experience getting a start there. Um, you know, I just sort of tracked through publishing is, is one of those careers that unless you change jobs, you don't get promoted and you don't get a raise. So, you know, every couple of years I would jump, jump jobs and, um, moved through, you know, from 
that assistant job through associate publicist, publicist and tracked on up. Um, most recently, I was the head of audience engagement at Oxford University Press. That's a, just a big way of saying, you know, I helped, you know, authors find their their customers, you know, find readers. And that was through marketing, social media, publicity, communications, and all of the all of the potential ways you might reach an audience. You know, the key things that I've learned, you know, which I think are as a publicist and as a marketer that are applicable really to to all authors and maybe all people in general is that people are happy to do things for you if you're nice to them. So, you know, we've always made an effort and I've always tried to convey um, to everyone who's worked for me that, you know, that sense of kindness and purpose, why we do what we do. You know, I've always worked with authors because I love ideas and I love to read and I'm a lifelong learner. You know, that goes both to fiction and nonfiction topics. You know, I love to read everything. So, you know, it's a great industry to be in if you love to read. And I think a lot of writers, you know, writers are readers. So, you know, getting to that space and that headspace of connecting with other writers and other readers is, you know, half the fun of, of getting your work out into the world. Okay, so you're um, one of your main or one of your sort of preferred aspects of that job is connecting with people with ideas and uh, publishing. Yeah, it sounds like one of the most ideal sort of ways to, to do that. How do you go about connecting an idea to an audience that's going to buy into that idea? I mean, mm-hmm. up to me, that that's a fascinating kind of process I'm not really thought about yet. So, um, you know, how do you kind of identify the right avatar or person who, you know, what's that process look like? Yeah. So I like that you bring up avatar, that concept of an ideal customer avatar works great for authors and writers. Um, that's certainly, you know, thinking about structuring and creating one of those. And there's lots of, you know, you can easily Google, how do I create my, my ideal customer avatar as an option, um, to get you started on that. But I'll say too, a really easy way to get that going is to think about what those people are reading. So if I'm in the the nonfiction space and I want to say, you know, I'm really interested in social issues how not for profits that maybe I work for a not for profit, how not for profits think and grow. I need to find out where those people who are interested in those sets of ideas read. Where do they consume? Are they mostly consuming their content, you know, through a newsfeed on Twitter? Are they getting most of their, you know, most of their news from the New York Times or is it the Atlantic or the nation? Like what's their publication that they read and subscribe to religiously? Like what's their thing and where do they go to find that information? If you're creating an ideal customer avatar, that's part of it, right? Writing down like what are the books this person has read in the last 12 months? What magazines do they subscribe to? What websites do they have digital subscriptions to? Like, what do they pay attention to? Do they belong to the library? Do they not belong to the library? You know, just like thinking about that allows you to create a guiding pathway for how you're going to connect with that person and what are the multitude of different avenues that you could utilize to connect with them. How do you go about getting that data? Is it 
is it a matter of sitting down and imagining that type of person or is it more a process of going out and clarifying that and finding that information so it's a solid sort of avatar so you can do research you could do you could send a survey you know to you know if you if you have a a a certain amount of following already even if it's only you know, a couple hundred people in, you know, say on social media or whatever it may be, or if you have a newsletter list, which a lot of authors have a newsletter list, if you can send, you know, send a survey and say, can you, if it'll take you five minutes, answer these 10 questions for me. Um, and you can get that feedback from them and actually have some real concrete data to use in creating your avatar. But I think, you know, as writers, we are creative, right? We can, probably imagine a good customer avatar. You know, a lot of publishers have what's called an author questionnaire. It's one of the first things that you get after you um, sign your contract. And um, in that author questionnaire will be a question that says something like, where do your readers read? What magazines do your, do your readers read? And I can tell you nine times out of 10, people write the Sunday Times, um, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and like, that's it. They, they haven't thought about it at all. So when, if you're <clears throat> in particular, if you're a genre writer or if you're a fiction writer, okay, if you're a fiction writer, most of those, you know, most people who are reading literary fiction subscribe to the New Yorker, right? So, you know, typical magazine you subscribe to, but, but what else do they subscribe to? Like, is it writer's digest? Is it poets and writers? Are there genre specific magazines that they're reading? How do you find you have to get granular? You can't do those big broad strokes and that requires thought and some time and effort. And your publisher, if you ultimately go with a publisher will know how much time and effort you've put into thinking about where your audience lives, right? Where they are consuming and um, how they find their next great read. How much detail are we talking about here? Like, like for um, a traditional publishing route, you know, proper publisher, will they put like a lot of effort into this? Is is this like a cornerstone part of the process? Finding finding the audience. Um, yeah, well, finding the audience, maybe creating that avatar, clarifying who that audience is. I'm not sure exactly what the number is in the UK, but in the US, we publish about 360,000 books a year through traditional publishers. So the answer to your question is no, they're not going to put a lot of time and effort into figuring out unique and creative ways to market and publicize your book. They just don't have the staff or the bandwidth to do it, which is why, you know, there, there are some editors who will, who will tell you author sells book. Um, and that's a pretty a, a catchphrase in publishing. Um, they're going to acquire your book. They're going to pay you a certain amount of money to write the book. And then they're going to expect you to market and sell it. That's an unreasonable expectation for 95% of authors. They don't know how to do that work. And books suffer because of it. Because we don't have... Not every book, the same profile and the same marketing campaign and the same PR campaign are not going to do the same things for every book. A lot of it is, can be very hit or miss. And just because a Goodreads campaign produces 500 five-star reviews on Goodreads for one author doesn't mean it's going to produce even 50 
five-star reviews for another book by another, by a different author. So those same tactics over and over and over again, they just don't work consistently, but publishers don't have the staff or the bandwidth to do new ideas every single book. Um, if you think about, you know, we're 30,000 books a month. So that's a lot of books. So the author is incredibly valuable. A collaborative author is incredibly valuable to a publisher. If they can come to the table with real ideas that allows the publisher to identify the market and think about, you know, if I spend $500 on an Instagram campaign to this specific community, we're going to sell 150 books. That's hugely valuable to a publisher. And that may seem small potatoes, 150 books seems like nothing in the grand scheme of things. But for an indie press, if they sell 1500 books, they might be happy. So that 150 books is substantial and meaningful for them. It's quite interesting hearing about the difference between maybe an independent publisher or, or, or an indie author just generally and the traditional approach. I mean, I've spoke to other people about this and I, I, I was aware that the budget available in a traditional publishing company for a specific author, unless you're already quite successful, is probably quite low or non-existent and you're expected to uh, push it yourself. That is true. You're, you're right. I mean, most marketing and publicity budgets for your average mid-list book, you know, book that falls like right in the middle, um, isn't, isn't the smallest book on the list, but certainly isn't the biggest book on the list is, is nothing. So that doesn't mean your publisher won't spend any money on the marketing of the book, but there's no like line item delineated budget for your book. So that doesn't mean that it may not end up in a group New York review of books ad. It might you know, or it might end up, you know, in a group publishers weekly ad, or it may get submitted for an award that costs $50 or $150. So there, there is money that will get invested in the book, but it doesn't, it's, it doesn't have a $10,000 budget for a tour. So it's become really important for an author to stand out and it's going to be down to them, whether they go the traditional route or the indie route, it's going to be down to them to think outside the box and come up with innovative ways to really think about who they're targeting um, in order to stand out from the mass of publications that are coming out every year or month. And at what point should an author start thinking about those things? Is it before the book's even published? Yes. Um, it should really, in the grand scheme of things, it should be years before the book is published. If your goal is to be a published author, whether that's an indie published author or, um, you know, a traditionally published author, that work on building your brand, building the way that you communicate with your potential readers takes a long time to build up and forge those connections and to do it authentically, which is really important. You can't do that in the six months in advance of publication. It really does take years. How do you go about building an authentic, you mentioned authentic. Um, so mm -hmm. there's obviously loads of different tactics you can do to build up big social media type followings um, that are a bit questionable. But how does one go about an authentic approach? What are the, some of the key ingredients for that? I think, I think one of the most important things with an authentic approach is just being yourself which for some authors is 
really hard because they're very private people. You're happy to spend the large majority of your time quietly shut in a room writing (laughs) or reading for that matter. So that can be a very challenging thing for authors to be vulnerable and be authentic on social media. Social media can also be a very scary place because people are mean on the internet. And I think having a closed community is better than having no community. I've been pushing some authors who are, so many people are anti Facebook now and Facebook owns Instagram. So, you know, there's a movement away from that. Twitter can be just a nightmare. I, I have encouraged some authors who are not interested in those spaces anymore to create a Slack group. Um, have it be closed, have it be invitation only. It doesn't mean you're the only one that can invite people to it. You know, you invite 12 people and each of them invites six people and they invite six people. And all of a sudden you have a space that's private, but growing and of hopefully like-minded individuals who are interested in not just sharing your work, but maybe they're working on things of their own, or maybe they have questions that need to be answered, or maybe you have a writing group and they, you know, each of them have, you know, contacts in other writing groups and it, it grows that way. And there's an opportunity to support each other within a space like that. So if you're afraid or just find social media repugnant, there are other alternatives to building community in a digital space. And then there's the, the real life ways that we build community, which is incredibly hard in a COVID world right now. But your local bookstore is certainly a home base of community for me. And I, we're incredibly fortunate here in Brooklyn. I think I'm within walking distance of five or six independent bookshops. So it's a really wonderful community. Our library also um, is a great community center. The Brooklyn Public Library is a has f- phenomenal programming, but also workshops and other types of things. There's um, the Sackett Street Writers Workshop is a great community here in Brooklyn. So um there's lots of different, you know, that's just in, in 30 seconds, like within my little space here in Brooklyn, I would imagine the same is true in London and Edinburgh and other areas, you know, around the UK and Europe where you have those, you know, there's a real passion for writing in the UK and Europe. I think more so than there is in the US, which gravitates in some ways to, um, you know, fast consumption of things. Um, So that opportunity to be involved in those communities and participate and, you know, be an active contributor, be, be a good literary citizen, right? In your space and whatever that world is that is most important to you. You see quite a lot of people on Instagram and the other ones as well, you know, just kind of selling their books and that's all you see. Is it necessary to kind of have that ongoing dialogue with um, your potential audience, that communication that isn't just, here's my book, buy it? Yeah. Um, I think if all all your feed is, is here's my book, buy it, you're not going to have many followers for long. (laughs) You know, that said, that's part of it. So... Do I have a specific number? Would I say like every, every, no more than one in six posts should be about you and your book? Probably even less than that, right? Maybe one in 10 or one in 12. But 
it's also something that depending on the medium, depending on which social platform, things are a little bit different. So you could tweet about your book once a day uh, over on Twitter and it, then it's gone, right? It's like it's in the waterfall cascade that is Twitter. So you could probably do that once or twice a day and, you know, have six or seven other tweets and nobody would care because it's just like a flash in the pan. Whereas on Instagram, if you're putting up, you know, like a post, like that's, it's there and, you know, it's on your, it's on your feed if people, you know, land on your page. And that's, I don't know, it's just, it's a little off putting. I think when I see an Instagram feed that every other post is, you know, here's my book. On the plus side with Instagram, they now have stories and reels, which expire over, you know, after 24 hours, your story expires. So if someone else mentions your book, you know, or posts about your book, like you can share it to a story disappears um, 24 hours later. So there are ways that you can effectively utilize the different tactics within any one given um, social media channel to best optimize how you're communicating with those people and still keeping your your book at the forefront, but not making it 100% of what you're trying to do. In your career so far, I mean, you must have worked on hundreds or even thousands of books. Have there been any ones that have like really stood out that, that have achieved a lot of sales, a lot of popularity? Um, yeah. So a couple of years ago, I worked, it's more than a couple of years ago now, um, on a book called The Death of Expertise by Tom Nichols, who has a huge Twitter following. He's you know, a lot of the authors I work with, and a lot, especially in the last several years um, with my time at Oxford, are nonfiction authors. Many of them are academics. They're in a very specific space where they are, you know, they're, they have an area of expertise. So Tom's book was particularly fun because it allowed us to poke fun at, you know, the, the rest of the US that, you know, is not interested in experts and even more so now we're, we're having a real problem with uh, people being unwilling to listen to experts. So that was a great campaign. We sold a lot of books. We had a great social media campaign. We had a lot of publicity. I worked on a book about hate speech by Nadine Strawson a few years ago. She was the president of the ACLU for a long time. I don't know, remember how many years. That was also a really great campaign. Um, dozens upon, do I, I want to say even hundreds of talks that she gave um, on that book across, you know, crisscrossing the US and she went to the UK and was all over um, speaking about that book. I'm trying to think what else. Oh, last year I worked on Diane Cook's novel, The New Wilderness. That was a great campaign. Um, we had a ton of media for that. She is an author who is not on social media and really doesn't want to be on social media. She finds it to be a distraction, which I think a lot of authors do. Yeah, what else? I'm working on Muriel Barbary's new novel, which is coming out in the fall with Europa Editions. Uh, she was the author of The Elegance of the Hedgehog, which was a huge international bestseller. We're hoping this new book will also do really well. I like that title, Elegance of the Hedgehog. The Elegance of the Hedgehog, isn't that great? It's also a great. <laughs> so with these uh, marketing campaigns for these successful books, are, they, are these ones that were kind of funded by the company or was there still quite a big element of the author pushing? Sure. So 
Tom and Nadine were both lead titles for Oxford. So we did, we had substantial budgets behind both of those books to make those campaigns go. I'll also add Tom and Nadine both also hired outside publicists of, on their own dime to assist and support the campaigns. You know, now I am a freelance publicist. So authors hired Diane hired me, um, Europa Editions hired me to work on Muriel's book. So it depends. It really varies a lot. I've certainly worked on plenty of books that had no budget at all and still, you know, managed to, to find their way into the hands of the right readers. But I'll say, I feel like a lot of the time when, when that happens organically without any substantial amount of budget, one of two things or, or both of these things tends to happen. Either a publicist falls in love with it and gives it everything she's got to get it into the hands of the right media people or a sales rep falls in love with it. And they really go to bat with the accounts on behalf of the book. And that can make all the difference. You don't need a huge budget. You just need someone to fall in love with it. How difficult is it for um, a, an independent author to get their book in the actual bookshops and not just Amazon? Almost impossible, which yes. I'll say is one of the reasons that it can pay to stick it out and keep submitting your book to publishers. There are a lot of things an author can do on their own, um, right down to the editing and the design work and even the PR, right? You could, an author could do. Getting a book into bookshops is really, really hard without that typical cycle that bookshops go through and that process that a sales rep takes the book out um, to bookstores. So I will say, so there's essentially two tracks or, or both tracks as the case may be. You can publish through Amazon, create space, or you can publish with Ingram Spark. And Ingram Spark, if, if you, if it's important for you to have your book in bookstores, that no bookstore is going to buy from Amazon distribution. So if getting into bookshops is important, publishing it through Ingram Spark can help with that. Now, they're not going to assign it to a sales rep, but if you go into your local bookstore or if your local bookstore is willing to host an event for you, which ha happens all the time, it's absolutely something an author can do, they need to be able to buy the book from someone other than Amazon. And they can do that through Ingram. I worked on a self-published book um, in the second half of 2019. And I rarely work on self-published books, but this book was being, it was being published by an organization called The Open Notebook, which is an organization for science writers. It's wonderful. If you have any science writers who listen to the show, I absolutely recommend going and checking out their website. They're a community of science journalists, mostly and they had a book of essays that they had been publishing on the website for years. And they put together a compilation. And we were trying to find, because they had so many famous journalists in this compilation that they had created, we knew that all of them would go out to their local bookshops and drop off a copy and say, would you carry this? Or will you host an event with me or whatever it may be? So the off the editor of the book, Siri Carpenter, had already started the process with Amazon and everything was all loaded and in the system there. And I was like, this isn't going to work. You need, you need another track 
um, in order to get the book into stores. So, you know, it ended up costing her more money to set it up, you know, a second time through Ingram, but it allowed for, um, for those purchases through bookstores to actually happen. And every time someone went into a bookstore anywhere in the country and said, I'd really like a copy of um, the open notebooks essays, you know, can you get that? They could say yes, because it was in the system, even if they weren't carrying it, it was in there because Ingram was carrying it. So it's just something to keep in mind. How does the arrangement with Ingram work? Is it a similar sort of thing, but that, but they're listed in more places or I mean, what's that arrangement look like? Amazon is sort of a closed circuit, right? Like Amazon is Amazon and people tend to understand how that space works, um, especially for, for self-publishing books. Ingram is a little bit different. Ingram is a book distributor. They also own a lot of smaller distribution companies. So like Consortium and PGW and some others uh, all have been bought up over the years by Ingram. So Ingram is, it's basically, it's a glorified warehouse, right? Like it's more than that now, but it's a place where books live and where bookstores can uh, still at a discount purchase books from. Ingram works directly with all of the publishers too. So most publishing houses have an Ingram sales rep, right? Like in the same way that they have an Amazon sales rep or a Barnes and Noble or a Waterstone sales rep, they have an Ingram sales rep. And that person is only buying books for distribution out to the broader indie bookstore community. So now Ingram has evolved over the years. It's more than that. It's, you know, it's this distribution warehouse. And then it's also the smaller company distribution arm. So like the consortiums of the world where they work with small indie presses and they provide a sales force for them. And they do all of that marketing work and other things to support indie presses. And then they have this Ingram Spark space where they have the self-publishing arm, which has both the printing, it has all the meta, you know, the, the computerized stuff that gets the metadata out to the accounts. It has all of that facility. Sounds brilliant. I mean, they serve a purpose. They, they have a, you know, a substantial job to do within the publishing ecosystem. That's for sure. But I don't love that they own a lot of different things now all falls under one umbrella it feels very amazonian in that sense that amazon does the same thing makes it hard on publishers yeah because you don't have a lot of options from your sort of quite wide experience in terms of marketing and and uh, branding and publicity and all, and all those things how important would it be to have a balance of you know the online social media stuff that most indie authors probably just gravitate to because it's quite it's, it's not easy to do but it's it's at the fingertips yes um how important is it to balance that with other forms of marketing for example going into bookstores to do events or you mentioned one of your authors did like hundreds of talks yeah. at various places is is that key to have that kind of balance in a perfect world you'd have a nice balance of different types of activities the publicity piece the social media marketing piece and then that traditional marketing piece which when you say traditional marketing a lot of people think like oh advertising which is true yeah so advertising is is definitely a marketing piece and social media can make advertising both effective and cost efficient. 
So it's not something that should be discounted. And those platforms make it phenomenally easy to run those ad campaigns yourself if you have the budget to do so. But there's other types of marketing. And as you say, um, giving talks, whether that's at your local library, your local bookshop, at a reading group, you know, like at a um, someone's book club type of a thing. Those all are ways you're going to sell your book. If you can have a nice, and I think looking at your publication schedule, like if your book comes out September 1st, thinking about what am I going to do over the next six months? You can, you, you will start some of that before publication date. So let's say, let's say it's the next nine months and it starts three months before pub date and runs six months after pub date. What can I do? And what's the right timing of, of activities? You start with social media and publicity outreach and scheduling of events so that those things are people are, you're building buzz and excitement in advance of publication. And then your events happen right around publication and maybe for six weeks after. And as you are starting those events and talks and other types of things, you're also doing some of that other marketing work. Maybe you are dropping a stack of bookmarks at your local bookshop or you're sending out postcards for something, whatever, you know, little marketing efforts. We have a client right now who had the idea. It's this really beautiful jacket and it's very, it's about a, um, it's about an architect, but it's very creative nonfiction. And the jacket is stunningly beautiful. And the world, the old, the original World Trade Center is in the background and then Battery Park before anything was built there. It's just a big sandy beach with two people laying, um, in the foreground on this sandy beach. And I was, I've lived in New York almost my whole life. I was like, where is this? I didn't understand at all what this photograph was. It's gorgeous. So he's, he was thinking to himself, he would make, um, essentially like billboard types of ads, like not taking out big billboards, but you know, like, a when you see on the, if there's a, I'm not describing this very well, if you see a construction site and there's that green plywood stuff where they put up those posters on those, um, plywood retainer wall type things. So he was saying he'd do fours, you know, do like four jackets in a row and just slap them up all over New York. And I was like, that's a brilliant marketing tactic. And an indie author can do that, right? Most publishers aren't going to pay for those posters anyway. So if the author has 500 bucks and wants to go print posters and slap them up all over New York, that's a fun and interesting tactic. Just don't forget, like, how, how do you direct people? What is this thing? How do they get a book? It's not just the jacket, right? Because then they've, they've got a Google and it gets complicated. So make sure there's a little tagline at the bottom that says, buy a book from your local bookshop or whatever. Thinking outside the box, doing yeah. something that stands out, that's a bit quirky, isn't run of the mill, you know, oh, I'm just going to post a picture of my book on Instagram and hope yeah. loads of people buy it. Do you know, um, is John Ray known in the UK much? He's a novelist. He might be, but no, not, not you by don't know him. No, sorry. So John Ray is an inter- he's an interesting guy. He has great books. Um, Low Boy is one of his books that I love. And he decided for his second book that he needed to do some big publicity stunt. And, you know, he didn't have a lot of budget. But he he wanted to do something, and he essentially decided the book um, was sort of it, 
it harkened back to Huckleberry Finn. Had, it had some elements from that story in it. So he decided he was going to raft down the Mississippi River. And it's like, okay, that, that's an interesting concept. You're going to raft down the Mississippi River, but what if nobody knows you're doing it? Right. So like, what's the, what's the goal? And he did. He ended up rafting down the Mississippi River and the New York Times covered it. And it's like, okay, bingo. Like there's, that's, that's your goal. Um, to get coverage for some publicity stunt or something, if that's what your, that's your, your ultimate goal there. Or how do I drive a person to, into a bookshop or how, you know, the, there has to be an end to the point of marketing. So ultimately, you know, we could think of fun and creative ideas all day long and publishers squash those fun and creative ideas all day, like every day. But that's me going back to the, to saying no all the time. It has to have a purpose. It has to, at the end of the day, sell books or else why are you doing it? So there has to be that clear call to action. I think you mentioned, you know, the posters going up on the building site walls um, and you, meant, you mentioned that there has to be like a call to action rather than just a picture of the uh, the, yeah. the book cover. Which, and you see it, maybe, I, I don't know if you see it in, in London as much as you see it here in New York, but people will either chalk etch or, you know, actually paint on the sidewalks here, do those little like stencils. And I love those stencils on the sidewalk. I think they're so interesting and creative. And half the time it tells me what I need to know in order for it to be a successful piece of marketing. And the other half of the time, like, I have no idea what this is for, right? It's like, (laughs) it's cool. It's beautiful, but it has no purpose other than being cool and beautiful on the sidewalk. It, It has to ultimately have a goal, which it may just be art, which is fine too. I'm cool with art, but if we're trying to sell something, if it's a piece of marketing, there has to be a directive. I like where this is going. I think because most most of these authors are probably not going to have big budgets. They might even struggle to, you know, to have a few thousand pounds or dollars to uh, go and promote their books. So I think, you know, these kinds of things, not thinking outside the box, it's going to be key, isn't it? I mean, just putting your book on Amazon sharing a few things out on social media is just not going to work is it it's too saturated it it is very saturated but at the same time you could also spend twenty thousand dollars and take out a booth at the london book fair and that does nothing for you either so the question is where is your audience and how do you reach them and what types of tactics are they going to respond to because if you have the type of reader that if you put something up about your book every single day on Instagram, will they become alienated by that? Then you don't, you ultimately don't want to do that. But if they won't become alienated and they're so in love with you and so enamored of the work that you're doing and they want to know every little thing and every little review and every five star on Goodreads and, and they're cool with that. That's fine too. So it's understanding that happy medium of what's most important to the audience you're trying to engage with. Is it easy? Probably isn't easy to uh, boil down the the process to say five five or six steps for an author who's uh, you know an indie author. You know, step one, you know, identify your audience. Step two, is it possible to kind of boil it down to say a handful of steps? someone to listen to this podcast go away and start thinking about applying what we're talking about to their own book yeah i mean i think that the first step and the most important step is to write a really good book 
And I think that leads right into the second step, which is having, um, having some readers who are willing to give you feedback on that book, but also those are your brand ambassadors, right? That's your first step. Those first readers, those sort of test readers are also the people who are probably going to stick by you the closest and shout from the rooftops when the book is ready to publish. So, you know, really appreciating those individuals and, you know, showing gratitude for their time and investment in your work. And hopefully that goes both ways, right? Maybe those readers are people that you're also reading their work for them and sharing their work um, when the time comes. So I would say that's step one. And step two is um, writing the, writing the best book you can, and then getting that, that initial set of readers who will hopefully be your brand ambassadors. Three is, is platform. And thinking about building that platform well in advance of publication. And when I say platform, I don't just mean social media platform. I really do mean like once a book, once a month, buying a book from your local bookshop. Because if the only place that you buy books is Amazon and you walk into your local bookstore and say, you know, will you carry my book? And they've never seen you before. They're not, they are not, they're going to be far less inclined to help you. So platform being both in real life platform and um, online platform for, I think is really, and this is where publishers add a tremendous amount of value, but you can recreate a lot of this on your own as an indie author. If you need to, if you have budget hiring a copy editor or a developmental editor or a professional jacket designer, the people who can make your book look and read the best it possibly can is I think incredibly valuable place to put your money. When your book is in really great shape, it's time to create a publicity and marketing plan. And that should happen eight to nine months before you're going to publish your book. If you're really on a fast track and you can't wait to publish it, which a lot of indie authors go that route because they're not willing to wait for that long-term process. And it does, it takes a long time to publish a book traditionally. And there are good reasons for that. But suffice it to say, if you can't wait, you can truncate and shorten your publicity and marketing timeline but be realistic. If you have a day job and you're working, you know, 40 or 50 hours a week, like how much can you really do in, you know, an hour, an evening, um, promoting and marketing your book yourself. So just thinking about maybe it does make sense to go with that eight to nine month timeline and do a little bit every week over the course of those eight to nine months so that you set your book up for the best possible success. And then, you know, the last step is just to publish it and, and, you know, be excited about it. And hopefully, you know, if perfectionism doesn't, um, paralyze you, like it often paralyzes me, just getting it out into the world is an awesome experience and enjoying those moments. And, you know, again, being that good literary citizen and being part of your literary community and, and getting, that feedback from that space can be really, really nice. You mentioned a marketing plan as, as one of yeah. the steps. Uh, what key ingredients would kind of make up a plan like that? Are we talking literally a timetable of events or is it more of a strategy, like a high level thing? 
Yeah. So it doesn't have to be high level, but it should, there should be a strategy behind it. So if you're thinking that you want to do events, that, that plan should happen some several months in advance and you start making, um, you know, scheduling. One of the really beautiful things about COVID, one of the only beautiful things about COVID is this ability to host online events where people from all over the world can come. And you don't necessarily, you can host it yourself is the beauty of it. And we have done this for a lot of our authors and clients where, you know, for one reason or another, you know, last summer was a mess um, in particular. So getting bookstores to host online events last year was really hard. And we were in a situation where we didn't necessarily need a bookstore to host it. So, you know, we would host it on Zoom. The author would invite all of their people. We would invite people. And, you know, before you knew it, you had 200 people on a Zoom call. And that's so authors can do that themselves. You don't necessarily have to have a bookstore, although it's nice to do sort of a literary event or a library event or something like that. So, yeah, if you're going to do either bookstore events or other types of events, or if you're going to talk to book clubs or any of those things, scheduling that out so that you can promote them as the time comes. And I would say, you know, you certainly want to promote an event like six to eight weeks before the event happens. You'll start the promotion for those events. And that's, again, could be postcards. It could be social media, whatever makes you happy. Um, And then if you're going to try for publicity and whether that's, you know, traditional media, publicity, book review, coverage, podcast publicity, which there are, I mean, many, many millions of podcasts now, apparently the the number is that there's 400 new podcasts launching every day. So if you can, if you can find your people in the podcast worlds, like that's, there's, um, there's definitely a route to go there publicity wise. And then Marketing, if you're going to think about doing a Goodreads giveaway, which indie authors can do themselves right through the Goodreads platform, that's a nice way to get the word out about the book and get people to put it on their shelves and, you know, distribute ebooks or whatever it is that you ultimately want to distribute um, as your giveaway. So, and it's relatively affordable. So there's little activities like that, that you can think about, but there's other little marketing things that you might or can do depending on what you're good at, right? If you're a designer in your day job, maybe there's something within that space that you can design like a beautiful deck of cards, right? That's every character in your book and you give those away or you give those to bookshops. Like if they buy 10 copies, you'll give them you know, 10 decks of cards or you can print a tote bag or whatever. There's lots of uh, various things that authors can do if they have the facility and a little bit of money. What's your thoughts around approaching an influencer or somebody who has an audience and, and maybe asking them to endorse your book or something along those lines? Yeah. So, um, there's two, I think there's two things there. There's that blurber. Um, question like puffs on the back of the book and getting someone who has a bigger name in the literary community or whatever specific community is that you're trying to access than you have and get them to give you say nice things about you that you can put on the book or tweet about it or you know whatever it may be is certainly a good and important thing to do and also something that you would want to do months in advance so 
they have time to read it. They have time to get back to you. You don't have to hassle them, et cetera. So you have a lot, plenty of time to do that work. And then those influencers within the book space, the bookstagrammers, the book talk is like such a thing now. It's like very rapidly evolved, especially in the YA community. Like book talk is absolutely the way to go. And it seems unlike a lot of other social media platforms where it's been hard to show real return on investment, book talk sells books. I don't get it. I don't understand why it works. Um, but it works. So yeah, if there are people that it's like a friend or of a friend can get you in touch with so-and-so absolutely take advantage of that. It's not too hard to reach out to book influencers, um, particularly on Instagram. They're a very friendly group more often than not. And they, they like to read and they like to get free books. So if it's something that, um, specifically, they're interested in your subject area or the genre you're writing in. I highly encourage authors to like really pay attention to what those individuals are interested in and not to send them things that they're not interested in because they'll never talk to you again um, because you're wasting their time. So you, nobody likes to have their time wasted. So just doing a little bit of that extra homework and being really kind when you reach out and complimenting something else that they have posted and, and saying why your book is similar or why you think they may love it. It really, it shows that you did your homework because there's so many. And I think this is true, you know, internal, um, publishing house, book marketers and publicists like don't always have time to do their homework and they're just blanketing. They're just sending copies out. So if you can save one of those influencers a little bit of time and show them why they would really be interested in your work, that goes a long way. I mean, we, years ago, um, I worked on this book called The Bottom Billion by Paul Collier. And, um, we wanted to get a copy into Bono's hands. We were like, if we can just get a copy to Bono, like this, will it'll be great. And we did, we managed to get him a copy of the book. We, we found his assistant or something somewhere. And, and anyway, um, and not only did we get a copy of the book into his hands, but he was photographed with it. So like some paparazzi like, and he's got it, you know, he's like clutching the book to him. And I was like, he got the book. I was so excited. We did not sell half a million copies because Bono was walking around with the book, but you know, it was long enough ago too, that I don't think if there was probably Twitter, but nobody was thinking about Twitter in, in the way that they are thinking about Twitter today in any event. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, it's wonderful to be able to do that and the opportunities that an author can bring to a project like that, you know, that I have a friend of a friend who can do X, Y, or Z for me, you know, many times in the past, we've had various ways of creating partnerships with, you know, if we have a book about, I don't know, trying to think of like health and wellness and um, whatever, and Goop wants to carry it, right? Like that's, that's like hitting the lottery. Um, but sometimes an author connection, like I have a friend who works, you know, or worked at Goop and can get a, a copy of the book into the right hands, like that 
is it's worth money to a publisher. And those are the types of things when an agent, or even if you don't have an agent is asking you to write your proposal for publishers, those little details can really help like because a publisher can see, even if you don't think it's a big deal, or even if it doesn't pan out, a publisher can still see the potential there of having just that little added bit of connection. It sounds quite a difficult thing to do though, getting past that through past the gatekeepers. Yeah. There, when I was at Knopf, we had a service. I wish I could remember the name of the service. I have no idea what it costs, but we could call this phone number and get five celebrity contacts a day. So you could call up and say, you know, I need, I don't know, Gwyneth Paltrow's address. And they would say, okay. And they would give you Gwyneth Paltrow's address. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, in any event, but it was like, we maxed out at five a day. So if we had some big projects, so I worked on a book by John Updike years ago called Gertrude and Claudius. And we wanted to do a big mouth mailing to all of the actors who had appeared in Shakespeare plays. So this was, it was a prequel to Hamlet about obviously Gertrude and Claudius. Um, so we wanted to send books to all of these celebrities. So we started months in advance because I could only get five a day and I'd call every day and say, you know, I need Kenneth Branagh's address and I need Glenn Close's address. And actually Glenn Close, the only person out of maybe 150 people I sent books to who sent me a thank you note for that book, which I still have to this day. <laughs> that number sounds amazing. Yeah, I know. I could use it today. It also sounds like something of Breaking Bad. You know, call this number. Don't ask any questions. <laughs> don't ask any. You're only allowed to ask ask one question. How do I ship a book to this person? <laughs> That's brilliant. I'd love to yeah. have that number. Yeah, me too. Um, so you're currently working as a consultant, a marketing consultant at the moment. Yeah. Um, so obviously, some of these authors are going to find that quite useful. That kind of support. So. What sort of things can a marketing consultant bring to the table for people like that? And, you know, are we talking serious money um, to hire somebody? Yeah, so it is pretty serious money, if I'm being honest with you. So the types of campaigns that we work on, uh, we do publicity and marketing campaigns for largely for authors who are publishing traditionally. So have a, a publishing house that they're publishing with. Although we do do some consultation projects for indie publishing authors, but there are certain areas that we're good at. We're, we're good at literary fiction and we're really good at working with experts. So, um, people who are lawyers and doctors and, um, you know, professors of politics and current events and other types of stuff. So, but yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of independent, um, publishing workers out there, whether it's in marketing space or editing or other things that we've talked a bit about. But, um, yeah, we do, we do a lot of work just, you know, trying to amplify and put together really great strategies for authors. And for people who are listening to this particular episode, um, who want to find out a bit more about you um, and the sort of work you're doing, um, where would be the best place for them to have a look? 
Yeah. So we're segue, we're going to rename the company. So there's a new website. So the new company is called page one media and the website is page one, the number, um, the numeral m.com. So P A G E one M.com. In your experience, you know, what are some of the common reasons for failure? Um, some, you know, what are the common sticking points or mistakes that marketing type mistakes that people might make when trying to promote a book? For indie authors specifically or for authors in general? Authors in general, I think. Yeah. So I'll be honest with you. Probably the biggest mistake that authors make is not sticking to the schedule. So assuming that your editor or if you're self-publishing, there's a little bit more leeway there. But assuming that that deadline to hand in, in your manuscript is flexible because it's not actually. And there's a lot, there's a huge cascade that goes downstream if you don't hit that manuscript date. Um, it really is a mess <laughs> when we don't get the books in on time. So that I would say is honestly is the biggest problem nine times out of 10 because it not only creates sort of like internal workflow issues at a publishing house, but because Amazon is the beast that it is, um, if those dates change in Amazon system, your publisher gets charged for that. So that's a constant um, piece of the marketing budget that gets eaten up by Amazon um, every single quarter. Actually, it's it, in it for a big publisher like Oxford, it can be a very substantial amount of the marketing budget gets eaten up by change fees. I imagine this is quite a common problem as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Does that... We call it slippage. Oh. If the book doesn't hit its date, it's slipped and it's um, called slippage. Does that get, uh, is there something in the budget that kind of takes that into account just in case it happens, you know, like a uh, emergency fund kind of thing. I mean, not that I'm aware of. We, I don't think we ever created like a buffer for chargebacks from Amazon, which the other accounts do it too, but Amazon is most egregious. Um, they'll also, they'll cut the order. So say Amazon has an order of 500 copies and the book misses its date. They'll, they may take none. They may decide, you know, we don't want any books at all, which really hurts. Or they may cut the order in half or, you know, by 75%. So it can have huge impacts not delivering the book on time. What do you think about um, advance, selling advanced copies of the book, you know, um, prior to publication? So um, doing pre-orders. You mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pre pre-orders are great um, for a number of reasons. One, because it allows your publisher to think strategically about the print run, and this works for indie authors too, right? If you can get pre-orders on Amazon or through Ingram, and you know that you've already sold 250 copies, you're going to save money by up printing because the more copies you print, the cheaper it is to print each individual copy. So that's true both for publishing houses and for indie publishers. Um, it's also, so, and this is more for those authors on that A side of the spectrum, but those pre-order campaigns can sometimes be enough to bounce an author onto the bestseller list. So depending on 
what else is coming out that week, what your competition is for the bestseller list. If you have the potential of like really driving a lot of pre-orders in advance of publication. And when I say a lot, I mean like five to 10,000 copies, which it may be significantly less in the UK. I'm not sure what it takes to get onto the bestseller list in the UK. But if you can move that many copies and you fueled pre-orders in advance, those all drop the first week, which even if you only sell 200 copies the second week, if that 5,000 copies or 7,500 copies drops all on day one, that can be enough depending on what else competition-wise is out there that same week in selling to hit the bestseller list. So that should definitely feature in any kind of marketing strategy then. Yeah. I mean, it certainly doesn't hurt. It certainly doesn't hurt. Sounds amazing. I'll have to check that out in terms of how many in the UK. (laughs) Yeah. I'd be curious actually myself. (laughs) I'll have have a look later and then I'll drop you a message and let you know. Okay, great. But thanks for doing this. It's been a really good, um, really good chat. I'm happy to. Thank you so much for having me. The hand is mightier than the sword. A podcast for writers. The Chris Roberts Show.